Part Two of the Aliens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Aliens by Murray Leinster. Part Two. Taine's voice came out of a speaker, harsh and angry. Even numbered tubes prepare to fire on command. Nothing happened. The two ships floated sunward together, neither approaching nor retreating. But with every second, the need for action of some sort increased. "'Mr. Baird,' barked the skipper, "'this is ridiculous. There must be some way to communicate. We can't sit here glaring at each other forever. Raise them. Get some sort of acknowledgement.' "'I'm trying,' said Baird bitterly, "'according to orders.' But he disagreed with those orders. It was official theory that arithmetic values, repeated in proper order, would be the way to open conversation. The assumption was that any rational creature would grasp the idea that orderly signals were rational attempts to open communication. But it had occurred to Baird that a plumie might not see this point. Perception of order is not necessarily perception of information, in fact quite the contrary. A message is a disturbance of order. A microphone does not transmit a message when it sends an unvarying tone. A message has to be unpredictable, or it conveys no message. Orderly clicks, even if overheard, might seem to plumies the result of methodically operating machinery. A race capable of interstellar flight was not likely to be interested or thrilled by exercises a human child goes through in kindergarten. They simply wouldn't seem meaningful at all. But before he could ask permission to attempt to make talk in a more sophisticated fashion, voices exclaimed all over the ship. They came blurringly to the loudspeakers. "'Look at that! What's he do?' "'Spinning like!' From every place where there was a vision-plate on the Nicola, men watched the plumy ship and babbled. This was at zero six hours fifty minutes ship time. The elliptical golden object darted into swift and eccentric motion. Lacking an object of known size for comparison, there was no scale. The golden ship might have been the size of an autumn leaf, and in fact its manoeuvres suggested the heedless tumblings and scurrying of falling foliage. It fluttered in swift turns and somersaults and spinnings. There were weavings like the purposeful feints of boxers not yet come to battle. There were indescribably graceful swoops and loops and curving dashes, like some preposterous dance in emptiness. Taine's voice crashed out of a speaker. "'All even-numbered rockets?' he barked. "'Fire!' The skipper roared a countermand, but too late. The crunching, grunting sound of rockets leaving their launching tubes came before his first syllable was complete. Then there was silence while the skipper gathered breath for a masterpiece of profanity. But Taine snapped, "'That dance was a sneak-up. The plumie came four miles nearer while we watched.' Baird jerked his eyes from watching the plumie. He looked at the master radar. It was faintly blurred with the fading lines of past gyrations, but the golden ship was much nearer the Nicola than it had been. "'Radar reporting,' said Baird, sickishly. "'Mr. Taine is correct. The plumy ship did approach us while it danced.' Taine's voice snarled. "'Reload even numbers with chemical explosive warheads. Then remove atomics from odd numbers and replace with chemicals. The range is too short for atomics.' Baird felt curiously divided in his own mind. He disliked Taine very much. Taine was arrogant and suspicious and intolerant even on the Nicola. But Taine had been right twice now. The plumy ship had crept closer by pure trickery, and it was right to remove atomic warheads from the rockets. They had a pure blast radius of ten miles. To destroy the plumy ship within twice that would endanger the Nicola, and leave nothing of the plumy to examine afterward. 
The plumie ship must have seen the rocket flares, but it continued to dance, coming nearer and ever nearer, in seemingly heedless and purposeless plungings and spinnings in star-speckled space. But suddenly there were racing, rushing trails of swirling vapour, half the Nicola's port broadside plunged toward the golden ship. The fraction of a second later the starboard half-dozen chemical explosive rockets swung furiously around the ship's hull and streaked after their brothers. They moved in utterly silent, straight-lined, ravening ferocity toward their target. Baird thought irrelevantly of the vapour trails of an atmosphere liner in the planet's upper air. The ruled-lined straightness of the first six rockets' course abruptly broke. One of them veered crazily out of control. It shifted to an almost right-angled course. A second swung wildly to the left. A third and fourth and fifth, a sixth of the first line of rockets, made a great sweeping turn and came hurtling back toward the Nicola. It was like a nightmare. Lunatic, erratic lines of sunlit vapour eeled before the background of all the stars in creation. Then the second half-dozen rockets broke ranks as insanely and irremediably as the first. Taine's voice screamed out of a speaker, hysterical with fury. "'Detonate! Detonate! They've taken over the rockets and are throwing them back at us! Detonate all rockets!' The heavens seemed streaked and laced with lines of expanding smoke, but now one plunging line erupted at its tip. A swelling globe of smoke marked its end. Another blew up, and another. The Nicola's rockets faithfully blew themselves to bits on command from the Nicola's own weapons control. There was nothing else to be done with them. They'd been taken over in flight. They'd been turned and headed back toward their source. They'd have blasted the Nicola to bits but for their premature explosions. There was a peculiar, stunned hush all through the Nicola. The only sound that came out of any speaker in the radar room was Taine's voice, high-pitched and raging, mouthing unspeakable hatred of the plumies, whom no human being had yet seen. Baird sat tense in the frustrated and desperate composure of the man who can only be of use while he is sitting still and keeping his head. The vision-screen was now a blur of writhing mist, lighted by the sun and torn at by emptiness. There was luminosity where the ships had encountered each other. It was sunshine upon thin smoke. It was like the insanely enlarging head of a newborn comet, whose tail would be formed presently by light pressure. The plumy ship was almost invisible behind the insubstantial stuff but Baird regarded his radar screens. Microwaves penetrated the mist of rapidly ionizing gases. "'Radar to navigation,' he said sharply. "'The plumie ship is still approaching, dancing as before.' The skipper said with enormous calm, "'Any other plumie ships, Mr. Baird?' Diane interposed. "'No sign anywhere. I've been watching. This seems to be the only ship within radar range.' "'We've time to settle with it, then,' said the skipper. "'Mr. Tain, the plumie ship is still approaching.' Baird found himself hating the plumies. It was not only that humankind was showing up rather badly at the moment. It was that the plumie ship had refused contact and forced a fight. It was that if the Nicola were destroyed, the plumie would carry news of the existence of humanity and of the tactics which worked to defeat them. The plumies could prepare an irresistible fleet. Humanity could be doomed.' but he overheard himself saying bitterly, "'I wish I'd known this was coming, Diane. I wouldn't have resolved to be strictly official only till we got back to base.' Her eyes widened. She looked startled. Then she softened. "'If if you mean that, I wish so, too.' "'It looks like they've got us,' he admitted unhappily. "'If they can take our rockets away from us—' Then his voice stopped. He said, 
Hold everything. And pressed the navigation room button. He snapped, Radar to navigation. It appears to take the plumies several seconds to take over a rocket. They have to aim something, a presser or tractor beam most likely, and pick off each rocket separately. Nearly forty seconds was consumed in taking over all twelve of our rockets. At shorter range, with less time available, a rocket might get through. The skipper swore briefly, then, "'Mr. Tane, when the plumies are near enough, our rockets may strike before they can be taken over. You follow?' Baird heard Tane's shrill-voiced acknowledgment, in the form of practically chattered orders to his rocket-tube crews. Baird listened, checking the orders against what the situation was as the radars saw it. Tane's voice was almost inhuman, so filled with frantic rage that it cracked as he spoke. But the problem at hand was the fulfilment of all his psychopathic urges. He commanded the starboard-side rocket battery to await special orders. Meanwhile, the port-side battery would fire two rockets on widely divergent courses, curving to join at the plumy ship. They'd be seized. They were to be detonated, and another port-side rocket fired instantly, followed by a second hidden in the rocket trail the first would leave behind. Then the starboard side. "'I'm afraid Tane's our only chance,' said Baird reluctantly. "'If he wins, we'll have time to talk, as people do who like each other, if it doesn't work.' Diane said quietly, "'Anyhow, I'm glad you wanted me to know. I wanted you to know, too.' She smiled at him, yearningly. There was the crump-crump of two rockets going out together. Then the radar told what happened. The plumy ship was no more than six miles away, dancing somehow deftly in the light of a yellow sun, with all the cosmos spread out as shining pinpoints of coloured light behind it. The radar reported the dash and the death of the two rockets after their struggle with invisible things that gripped them. They died when they headed reluctantly back to the Nicola, and detonated two miles from their parent ship. The skipper's voice came. "'Mr. Tane, after your next salvo, I shall head for the plumie at full drive to cut down the distance and the time they have to work in. Be ready.' The rocket tubes went crump-crump again with a fifth of a second interval. The radar showed two tiny specks speeding through space toward the weaving, shifting speck which was the plumie. Outside, in emptiness, there was a filmy haze. It was the rocket fumes and explosive gases spreading with incredible speed. It was thin as gossamer. The plumy ship undoubtedly spotted the rockets, but it did not try to turn them. It somehow seized them and deflected them, and darted past them toward the Nicola. "'They see the trick,' said Diane, dry-throated. "'If they can get in close enough, they can turn it against us.' There were noises inside the Nicola now. Tane fairly howled an order. There were yells of defiance and excitement. There were more of those inadequate noises as rockets went out. Every tube on the starboard side emptied itself in a series of savage grunts, and the Nicola's magnetronic drive roared at full flux density. The two ships were less than a mile apart when the Nicola let go her full double broadside of missiles. And then it seemed that the plumy ship was doomed. There were simply too many rockets to be seized and handled before at least one struck. But there was a new condition. The plumy ship weaved and dodged its way through them. The new condition was that the rockets were just beginning their run. They had not achieved the terrific velocity they would accumulate in ten miles of no gravity. They were new-launched, logy, clumsy, not the streaking, flashing death and destruction they would become with thirty more seconds of acceleration. So the plumy ship dodged them with a skill and daring past belief. With an incredible agility it got inside them, nearer to the Nicola than they. 
and then it hurled itself at the human ship as if bent upon a suicidal crash which would destroy both ships together. But Baird, in the radar-room, and the skipper in navigation, knew that it would plunge brilliantly past at the last instant. And then they knew that it would not. Because very suddenly and very abruptly there was something the matter with the plumie ship. The life went out of it. It ceased to accelerate or decelerate. It ceased to steer. It began to turn slowly on an axis somewhere amidships. Its nose swung to one side, with no change in the direction of its motion. It floated onward. It was broadside to its line of travel. It continued to turn. It hurtled stern first toward the Nicola. It did not swerve. It did not dance. It was a lifeless hulk, a derelict in space. And it would hit the Nicola amidships with no possible result but destruction for both vessels. The Nicola skipper bellowed orders, as if shouting would somehow give them more effect. The magnetronic drive roared. He demanded a miracle of it, and he almost got one. The drive strained its thrust members. It hopelessly overloaded its coils. The Nicola's cobalt-steel hull became more than saturated with the drive-field, and it leapt madly upon an evasion course. And it very nearly got away. It was swinging clear when the plumie ship drifted within fathoms, it was turning aside when the plumie ship was within yards, and it was almost safe when the golden hull of the plumie, shadowed now by the Nicola itself, barely scraped a side-keel. There was a touch, seemingly deliberate and gentle, but the Nicola shuddered horribly. Then the vision-screens flared from such a light as might herald the crack of doom. There was a brightness greater than the brilliance of the sun, and then there was a wrenching, heaving shock. Then there was blackness. Baird was flung across the radar-room, and Diane cried out, and he careened against a wall and heard glass shatter. He called, "'Diane!' He clutched crazily at anything and called her name again. The Nicola's internal gravity was cut off, and his head spun, and he heard collision doors closing everywhere. But before they closed completely, he heard the rasping sound of giant arcs leaping in the engine-room. Then there was silence. "'Diane!' cried Baird fiercely. "'Diane!' "'I'm here,' she panted. "'I'm, I'm dizzy, but I think I'm all right.' The battery-powered emergency light came on. It was faint, but he saw her clinging to a bank of instruments where she'd been thrown by the collision. He moved to go to her, and found himself floating in mid-air. But he drifted to a side-wall and worked his way to her. She clung to him, shivering. "'I, I think,' she said unsteadily, "'that we're going to die, aren't we?' "'We'll see,' he told her. "'Hold on to me.' Guided by the emergency light, he scrambled to the bank of communicator buttons. What had been the floor was now a side-wall. He climbed it, and thumbed the navigation-room switch. "'Radar-room reporting,' he said curtly. "'Power out, gravity off, no reports from outside, from power failure. No great physical damage.' He began to hear other voices. There had never been an actual space collision in the memory of man, but reports came crisply, and the cut-in speakers in the radar-room repeated them. Ship gravity was out all over the ship, emergency lights were functioning, and were all the lights there were. There was a slight, unexplained gravity drift towards what had been the ship's port side, but damage control reported no loss of pressure in the Nicola's inner hull, though four areas between inner and outer hulls had lost air pressure to space. "'Mr. Baird,' rasped the skipper, "'we're blind. Forget everything else, and give us eyes to see with.' "'We'll try battery power to the vision-plates,' Baird told Diane. "'No full resolution, but better than nothing.' They worked together feverishly. They were dizzy. Something close to nausea came upon them from pure giddiness. 
What had been the floor was now a wall, and they had to climb to reach the instruments that had been on a wall and now were on the ceiling. But their weight was answers only. Baird said abruptly, "'I know what's the matter. We're spinning. The whole ship's spinning. That's why we're giddy, and why we have even a trace of weight. Centrifugal force. Ready for the current?' There was a tiny click, and the battery light dimmed. But a vision screen lighted faintly. The stars it showed were moving specks of light. The sun passed deliberately across the screen. Baird switched to other outside scanners. There was power for only one screen at a time, but he saw the starkly impossible. He pressed the navigation room button. "'Radar room reporting,' he said urgently. "'The plumie ship is fast to us, in contact with our hull. Both ships are spinning together.' He was trying yet other scanners as he spoke, and now he said, "'Got it.' There are no lines connecting us to the plumie, but it looks—yes, that flash when the ships came together was a flashover of high potential. We're welded to them along twenty feet of our hull. The skipper. Damnation! Any sign of intention to board us? Not yet, sir. Taine burst in, his voice high-pitched and thick with hatred. Damage control parties, attention! Arm yourselves and assemble at starboard airlock. Rocket crews get into suits and prepare to board this plumie— Countermand, bellowed the skipper from the speaker beside Baird's ear. "'Those orders are cancelled. Damn it! If we were successfully boarded, we'd blow ourselves to bits. Those are our orders. Do you think the plumies will let their ship be taken? And wouldn't we blow up with them? Mr. Taine, you will take no offensive action without specific orders. Defensive action is another matter. Mr. Baird, I consider this welding business pure accident. No one would be mad enough to plan it. You watch the plumies and keep me informed.' His voice ceased, and Baird had again the frustrating duty of remaining still and keeping his head while other men engaged in physical activity. He helped Diane to a chair, which was fastened to the floor, which was now a wall, and she wedged herself fast and began a review of what each of the outside scanners reported. Baird called for more batteries. Power for the radar and visions was more important than anything else just then. If there were more plumy ships— Electricians half-floated, half-dragged extra batteries to the radar room. Baird hooked them in. The universe outside the ship again appeared filled with the brilliantly coloured dots of light which were the stars. More satisfying, the globe-scanners again reported no new objects anywhere. Nothing new within a quarter-million miles. A half-million. Later Baird reported, "'Radars report no strange objects within a million miles of the Nicola, sir.' "'Except the ship we're welded to, but you're doing very well. "'However, microphones say there is movement inside the plumie.' "'Diane beckoned for Baird's attention to a screen which Baird had examined before. "'Now he stiffened and motioned for her to report. "'We've a scanner, sir,' said Diane, "'which faces what looks like a port on the plumie ship. "'There's a figure at the port. "'I can't make out details, but it's making motions facing us.' "'Give me the picture,' snapped the skipper.' Diane obeyed. It was the merest flip of a switch. Then her eyes went back to the spherical sweep scanners which reported the bearing and distance of every solid object within their range. She set up two instruments which would measure the angle, bearing, and distance of the two planets now on this side of the sun, the gas giant and the oxygen world to sunward. Their orbital speeds and distances were known. The position, course, and speed of the Nicola could be computed from any two observations on them. End of part two.